What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Lynn Alden is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. In this conversation, we talk about the Federal Reserve, inflation, recession, monetary policy, fiscal policy, Bitcoin, and where she sees the world going over the next couple of years. I really enjoyed this conversation with Lynn, and I hope you all enjoy it as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I first want to talk about our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Unstoppable Domains. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, I'd bet that the two things are true. First, you're passionate about Web3 and protecting your personal data. And two, you're a human being. If I'm right, then congratulations. You're entitled to all the benefits of the decentralized web. But here's the catch. As Web3-enabled technology like NFTs, smart contracts, and DAOs dive more elements of our real-world lives online, proving that you're a person without surrendering your personal data becomes exponentially more valuable and exponentially more difficult at the same time. This is why Unstoppable Domains launched Humanity Check. Humanity Check proves that you're, well, you, without revealing any of your personal data. No matter where you go on the web, you'll have total control over which apps you want to share your data with and which ones you don't. Prefer to be completely clouded in mystique? No worries, Humanity Check is 100% opt-in. If you want to feel alive or at least prove you are, head to unstoppabledomains.com today and get your NFT domain with Humanity Check. Again, head on over to unstoppabledomains.com and get your NFT domain with Humanity Check today. This episode is brought to you by Valor. Valor represents what's next in the digital economy. They provide simplified, trusted access to crypto, decentralized finance, and Web3 investment opportunities. Institutions and investors can gain diversified, secure, compliant, and easily tradable access to a diversified set of industry-leading equity products and protocols through a single stock purchase on a regulated exchange. They're currently listed on the OTC at DEFTF and on the Canadian NEO exchange at DEFI, for more information or to subscribe to receive company updates and financial information, you can visit their website at valor.com. That's V-A-L-O-U-R.com. Valor.com. Go check them out today. This episode is brought to you by FTX US. FTX.US is the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets. You can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees either. FTX.US is also the only leading exchange that supports both Ethereum and Solana NFTs. Download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP to earn these free crypto on every trade over $10. The more you trade, the more you earn. Go download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Lynn, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? I am doing very well. Uh, I'm looking forward to speaking with you because I think you've got a nuanced view on inflation. One of the maybe misconceptions about inflation is that it is only driven by monetary policy. Obviously, monetary policy has a big effect, but you recently wrote a piece about fiscal-driven inflation. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit and explain why is the fiscal component so important given the inflation we're seeing right now? 
Sure. So a, a big theme I've had actually for a couple of years now is that uh, the inflation that we're going to get, which which now we have, is in large part driven by fiscal spending. And the difference, you know, for for people that that don't know the difference, monetary policy is like what the central bank does. It's like what are interest rates going to be? Are they doing quantitative easing or quantitative tightening? That sort of thing. Whereas fiscal policy uh, is basically about taxing and spending by uh, you know Congress and the president. Um, and especially when you get extreme fiscal policy. Uh, like you know, unusually large multi-trillion-dollar deficits um, that that actually puts money out into the broad money supply. And so, if you look back at say the 2008 crisis, for example, um, there was a large monetary response. So we saw the, the the base money go up quite a bit, but most most of that just stayed in the banking system. It didn't actually really circulate to the general public. It's not like you and me got checks sent to us. Uh, that we can then use to buy things, right? So there, you know, it's not like people had more purchasing power. There's, there was not a realistic uh, version of more money chasing the same goods. Whereas what we saw in the 2020 response uh, was in addition to the monetary response, we also had things like helicopter money, um, PPP loans that turn into grants, um, you know, uh, uh, tax, basically just tax cuts that are not uh, offset by um, anything else. Um, and so that was a large injection directly to people's bank accounts uh, in different ways. We also saw corporate bailouts, for example. And so in that type of environment, you actually have a broad money supply increase. There's actually more money that people could control chasing the same number of goods and services. And of course, the monetary policy is still relevant because they're printing money to buy the bonds that is enabling the fiscal expenditure. Uh, because if they try to just issue trillions of dollars of bonds, um, they'd have problems with like liquidity. Like there wouldn't be enough buyers showing up to buy those treasuries, and so the the central banks are monetizing that fiscal. Um, so it's really that that blend of monetary policy and fiscal together, as well as of course real world constraints that we've run into, right? So the fact that we had underinvested in you know kind of physical goods like you know oil capex and things like that for a few years was the, was the also the supply side uh, of this whole inflation thing. Is it fair to break down the most simplistic uh, analysis being monetary policy drives liquidity into the financial system, but fiscal policy drives liquidity into the hands of people? And because we got both in 2020, the monetary policy drove the asset bubble and the fiscal policy drove the inflation. So kind of all items went up in price. Some of them were investment assets. Some of them were consumer goods and services. Is that a way to break it down, or could the fiscal policy actually have also had an impact on the asset prices going up as well? I think you described it well, but I would say that that fiscal impacts both. So I think that I think that monetary policy, you know, specifically QE, putting putting liquidity into the system, is is generally pretty good for financial assets. Uh, whereas uh, fiscal policy is 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 basically you know consumer price inflation, uh, as well as you know because that consumer price inflation is resulting in in more revenue and 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 things like that for various businesses, at least in nominal terms. Um, it, it's also generally good for asset prices in nominal terms. Um, whether it's in real terms is, is another story. And a good example of this is is Japan because if you look at their QE, I mean they did more QE as a percentage of their GDP than like any other major country. I mean they have you know their balance sheets over 100% of their GDP, whereas the United States it's like you know under 40%. 
and they just it, it looks like a Weimar chart if you look at their at their base money, but because it wasn't combined with huge fiscal expenditures, I mean their their broad money supply actually went up pretty slowly this whole time. And if you look at at Japan, so they they're well known for like their thirty year bear market where their equities are still literally like like cheaper than they were uh, in, in the beginning of the nineties. Um, but that wasn't like a sideways market. I mean you had a a couple decades of downturn, and then starting around twenty twelve, you. Japan actually had a pretty strong equity bull market. It was, it was like one of the, you know, outside of the U.S., it was one of the better performing equity markets over the past decade. And that's that's specifically when their QE started really ramping up uh, in 2012. They they started printing a ton of money in 2012, they never really stopped, uh, and that included for them, unlike the Fed, buying equities. And so if you look at at Japanese equities from 2012, and you look at their QE from 2012, uh, there's a pretty strong correlation with that being very good for their equity market. Um, but it wasn't consumer price inflationary for Japan because, again, it wasn't combined with things like helicopter money or, or, or things like that. When most people look at high inflation in the United States, uh, like we're experiencing now, they point to the 1970s. Your analysis for a while now has been rooted in not comparing current environment to 1970s, but rather the 1940s. Can you elaborate a little bit on what was going on in the 40s that, that makes it a much a more attractive comparison in your mind? Sure. So in the 1970s, a lot of the inflation that we had was from bank loans, right? So there there were fiscal deficits, uh, but they weren't the biggest driver of what we're having. There was a demographics boom, so right. So there's you know the boomers were going into their home buying years, um, and so there's this rapid increase in demand for things, um, and so that you got a pretty significant money supply growth. But that was because a lot of banks were were lending money into existence, and then of course you you threw on top of that. Um, you know, the guns and butter program. So you, you threw on some fiscal deficits on top of that. And, uh, you know, that was combined with the fact that the, the one similarity, the key similarity to the 70s is that we had an energy supply problem. So so U.S. oil production peaked in 1970 after like 100 years of like constantly going up. And so we became more reliant on the Middle East. Um, and so we, we obviously had some some geopolitical turmoils with that and, and trouble getting the oil supply we need up against a time of, of very huge demand uh, that was largely demographics and bank loan driven. Um, whereas if you go back to the 40s, the reason that's more similar is because that inflation was not driven by bank lending. Uh, banks weren't really lending a ton during that era. Instead, that was driven by massive fiscal expenditures. Um, and so, you know, the 1930s, you know, were a lot like the 2010s in the sense that, you know, the 1929 crash and the 2008 crash were pretty similar. You had a gigantic private debt bubble blowing up. Then you had this long period of stagnation, rising populism, uh, kind of just rising economic fragility. And then in the 1940s, they were hit with an external shock. Basically, a lot of that populism had spread around the world. You got, you got, you know, these wars started to materialize. And so they had to do, you know, they did large fiscal expenditures. And a lot of that was in the domestic economy, and they were building, you know, manufacturing facilities. They were hiring people. Uh, when the when the soldiers came back, they they sent eight million of them into technical school and college, and then helped them get a get a mortgage. Um, th these were uh, very large fiscal expenditures, and so you had a huge increase in the in the money supply, and that was, as you'd expect, pretty inflationary. Um, and then the also the key difference is so in the 70s. Debt as a percentage of GDP, both public and private, was pretty low. And so when they encountered inflation, they could raise rates to double-digit levels to try to quell inflation and give positive real rates. Whereas in the 1940s, because you had so much fiscal expenditure to fight the war, you had over 100% debt to GDP. And so they couldn't really raise rates to, to match inflation levels. And so they just let it run hot. And you had the biggest ever gap between inflation uh, and interest rates. Uh, and in fact, they even they even pegged the long end of the treasury curve, like what Japan's doing now. And so this environment here in the 2020s, I think, is pretty similar because one, 
the growth in the money supply is largely a fiscal phenomenon. It's not due to unusually high bank lending. It's due to unusually large fiscal deficits that are monetized by the Fed, which again, actually they did that back in the 40s. So there was, there was huge QE in the 40s to monetize it. Um, and um, it, it's not due to excessive demand or you know uh, positive demographics. Uh, it's due to that, that more strained geopolitical environment and that strained economic and socioeconomic environment. You mentioned populism and its relationship with fiscal policy. Obviously, social media has made it much easier for people to communicate around the world. Uh, and it feels like every day there's some new thing that people are upset about or kind of, you know, uh, cancel culture is running wild or there's virtue signaling going on. Uh, and obviously politicians are not immune to getting caught up in kind of the whims of uh, the flavor of the day, if you will. How much do you think uh, the expansion of fiscal policy that we've seen is just there's an easier way for folks to communicate? They can tweet at politicians. They can make their voices heard. They've got podcasts and YouTube and kind of all these different platforms. And that means that politicians now are more likely to kind of hear the people. And that leads to kind of bigger and bigger and more severe and aggressive uh, fiscal policy um, kind of programs. I think it's a combination of that and one of, so, and then the debt. So the debt portion is the fact that when debt is super high, when you have hundreds of percent, like so in the United States, we have 370% public and private debt as a percentage of GDP. So if you had, if you had corporate debt, household debt, and, and public debt combined, it's you know 370% of GDP or so. And that's that's basically unpayable in real terms. And so the question becomes, how does that default? Does that default uh, nominally? Probably not, because the liabilities are in our own currency. And so in, instead, you generally are going to get default through inflation. Uh, where you're just gonna have a long period of negative real rates, and so those bondholders will get paid back, but not as you know, not not in real terms. And so large fiscal expenditures, while holding rates low, are one of the the main ways to inflate away uh, large levels of debt. So I think that's that's the mathematical component, and then the 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 more social uh, component is that populism, and generally, you know, that kind of goes back to the fourth turning concept of you know people people build these institutions. And those institutions last for decades, um, but then over time, you know, as the founders they die, and then as as you get kind of the third, fourth generation of of these institutions, they drift away from their original purpose, or they become corrupted, or society has changed and no longer respects those institutions. Usually, a combination of all these things together, and so in that period of rising populism, they generally feel that the institutions, the frameworks that we've constructed, are no longer working well for the majority of the people. And so you start to get a lot of pushbacks on it. That could be the government, that can be media, that can be uh, certain corporations, basically, uh, you know, certain international organizations. And when you start to get that pushback on that, you get just broad distrust of that sort of thing. And you have just kind of like that very fragile system from how much debt's there. And so I, I think in that, when they're hit by an external shock, uh, I, I think they err on the side of basically money printing because in their mind, it's better than debt collapse. And so generally, when you get the end of a long-term debt cycle like we're at now, it, it, it tends to die in fire rather than ice, meaning that you, you tend to err on the side of high inflation rather than deflationary collapse. You mentioned both public and private debt. What's the relationship between those two? And how do we kind of go back and forth between having more public debt or more private debt? And is it important to watch kind of the percentages or the balance between public and private? Or do you just analyze it all as one big bucket of debt? I think they're very different, uh, and it's because private debt is actually more deflationary um, uh, because if you start to default uh, and you don't pay loans back or you know things like that, that actually destroys broad money. Um, and so both of the biggest 
private debt bubble collapses in American history, uh, which would be, you know, the 1929 aftermath, you know, into the 30s and the 2008 aftermath into the, into the 2010s. Um, both of those were pretty disinflationary periods. Um, and the general theme and the same thing for Japan, right? So their, their 19, uh, you know, late, late 1980s uh, debt bubble basically spent then decades just like melting uh, as as that you know, private debt bubble kind of just worked itself out. And a general theme is that private debt bubbles slowly get resolved by pushing that up to the public level, right? So, so generally, a private debt bubble precedes a public debt bubble. And then as that private debt bubble is kind of melting and people are getting all disgruntled, that's usually when, you, when they come in with larger fiscal deficits. Um, they do very stimulus. And it, what eventually happens is that private debt bubble kind of diminishes, but then shows up on the public balance sheet. So larger um, sovereign debt relative to GDP. Uh, and that tends to be more inflationary because that that is never going to be defaulted on because it's in their own liabilities. And, and and so that's where it eventually gets expressed through the currency. Uh, you basically the only way the only way that that debt gets discharged uh, is by, you know, currency devaluation and basically defaulting in real terms. And so we saw that in Japan. Right. So you had that gigantic, absolutely huge private debt bubble spends decade melting. Uh, run persistent uh, moderate deficits that are constantly being monetized, and instead, you know, we've had actually deleveraging, for example, in Japanese corporations. But all that debt is now on in you know Japanese government debt. And then the, we saw the same thing uh, in the you know U.S. 1930s and 40s, and we saw the same thing in the U.S. you know 2010s to 2020. So now we're in more of the public debt bubble phase of this, which, which tends to be a more inflationary period. When we look at the last, I don't know, two years. One of the things that sticks out around the central bank is that the Federal Reserve was holding interest rates artificially low at 0%, uh, and they also were conducting quantitative easing, even though inflation in the summer of 2021 got over 5%, and by the end of the year was over 7%. What is the importance of realizing in hindsight that that probably was a mistake? Is it something that you can kind of ascribe uh, a, a level of uh, severity in terms of the problem we're experiencing now, uh, or how do you kind of analyze that action? Like that's such a crazy thing in hindsight that they were still doing that. How do you look at it? One of the the challenges I find is, is determining what is a mistake and what is intentional, right? So if they know that there are super high debt levels and the only way to discharge them is through inflation, um, you could make an argument that it was a mistake, um, whereas so it's kind of like, are they smart, but then being misleading or are they actually dumb, right? So it's kind of like one or the other. Um, there was a BlackRock paper written in 2019 before the, the pandemic. And it was like, you know, the next downturn, monetary policy is not going to be enough because interest rates are so low and debts are so high. So we're going to have to do significant fiscal stimulus, um, but that can be inflationary and drive rates up. So they're going to have to keep rates low through monetary policy. So you're going to have to have coordination between fiscal monetary policy. Uh, but then the challenge is that that can cause runaway inflation. So that's going to be managed very carefully. So they, they actually kind of laid out the whole playbook ahead of time. And, and that was both BlackRock and it was, uh, it was advised by Stanley Fisher, for, former, former Fed official. And of course, they didn't predict a pandemic, but so it's, it's kind of even bigger than, than that paper would have suggested. But we actually followed that playbook almost step by step in terms of watching what these policymakers are doing. Um, and so, you know, I think that they they over they certainly overdid it. I think even in their view, I think that part I think part of the original one, they wanted to let it run hot for my first reason that they, they wanted to burn some debt away. But I didn't think that they they thought it would get this hot this quickly. Um, and I think if they did, they probably would have done certain things differently. And I think it's because a lot of their models are just not 
not great. I don't I don't think they're looking at at oil capex, the real world supply side stuff. And I also don't think they're making a great distinction between broad money supply and base money supply as its impact on inflation. I just think that a lot of their models are out, out of date and that the models are kind of bureaucratic. I mean, they're 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 these large institutions, a lot of academic input. Um, and I don't I don't think they have like the 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 rapid learning effect that you see more in like the business world. When we think about this inflation, I want to talk about two specific uh, contributions. Uh, so we're talking about the data and how they didn't think that inflation would get this hot this quickly. Uh, the first one is what I'll call kind of external events. So obviously the pandemic is one that you mentioned. There's also been uh, supply chain disruptions that have kind of come in the wake of that. There's been geopolitical conflict with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How do you anticipate them uh, either trying to uh, see these events coming to analyze them in real time? Like how much of an impact do these external events have on changing their policy? Or is it something where they just have their policy, they're going to execute their plan. And although these things happen, they don't really either pay attention or they end up not actually being willing to change the plan uh, regardless of what happens externally. I think these external things eventually change their plan, especially as expressed through markets. Um, and so the Fed has to kind of put out fires as they come. Uh, and so the, these events kind of, you know, end up showing up in markets, which then ends up having to be the things that the Fed has to respond to. So, for example, they, you know, in, in, in 2019, I bet none of them expected what they'd be doing in 2020 at the scale they were doing it at. And so they had to, you know, I mean, they had an emergency meeting in March 2020, and they were kind of changing their plan because the treasury market broke, which I don't think was on like, you know, their 2019 bingo cards. Um, think, you know, things like what we're seeing geopolitically, it's challenging because it, it's like it becomes self-referential. Usually, um, you know, the the problems are like when you have long-term debt cycles blowing up, and then you have more inflationary periods. That leads to more discontent and more geopolitical struggle, which then leads to more inflation. And and so it's kind of that vicious cycle. Uh, that's generally what you see in these periods. And so one leads to the other, and one leads back to itself. Um, and you know, when it comes to, for example, what we're seeing in in say, you know, Ukraine, Europe's energy prices, so natural gas prices in Europe, which 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 if anyone has looked at them, they look like a Weimar chart. It's like it's a horrifying price chart, as, you know, compared to what we're what we're experiencing in the United States in terms of energy prices. So no natural gas prices soared, but that happened in late 2021. They were already encountering challenges with that, and then the, you know the whole Russian invasion just added more problems on top of that. It didn't create the problem initially; it just added layers of of additional risks and insecurity and, and additional volatility and, and inflation on top of what was already, you know, a physical constraint in terms of natural gas and and other things that were happening there. And so I think that's going to be the theme of the 2020s is basically problems feeding back on on making the problems even worse. The second piece is the data they're actually looking at. So you mentioned the models are outdated, maybe even bureaucratic to some degree. Uh, there's now been what I'll consider public conversation or mainstream conversation around just how the data is collected. There's been articles that show, hey, they only have a couple hundred people that literally physically go to the store with a tablet and they're like manually inputting prices. Uh, you can look at something like the CPI uh, rent methodology where they're essentially using outdated census data to call people on the phone. And really where this gets highlighted is we have companies like Square or Zillow or Apartment.com and, and you know various other what I would consider more real-time, uh, much more robust data sets. How do you evaluate the uh, maybe accuracy of the data they have? Uh, and then how do you compare it to other data sets that are out there that they may just be ignoring or, or they don't want to use? How, how, do, how do you kind of evaluate it? Basically, I do what you just said. I look at, I look at what the public – 
you know, models are doing. So I look at what official CPI is doing because, of course, that's a lot of traditional markets like the bond market will look at things like that. So they're relevant to know and to understand what's happening in that data. Um, but then I also do go out to, to, you know, to things like like these real time rent indicators and things like that. And it's a couple of things. One is it helps you determine the accuracy or the inaccuracy of things like CPI. Two is it lets you predict what's going to happen with CPI. So, so one of the reasons I was expecting CPI to go up is because I saw the rent uh, component happening in real time. And I was like, this is going to start showing up in, in CPI because CPI kind of incorporates that over time, but like with a lag and smoothed out and, and you know, somewhat inaccurate, but it still ends up getting into there uh, in a pretty significant way. And so I think that looking at that mix of things um, is, is super important because the, the 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 you know the government statistics are important for traditional markets responding to them um, and and knowing how policymakers are going to try to respond to them and how they're going to signal around that. But then yeah, those those real world uh, faster time updating ones are super useful for for accuracy. There's also things like you know there's. Uh, services that track what used car prices are doing. And it comes out, you know, every couple of weeks instead of, you know, with a lag. And it's, in my view, pretty accurate. And like you said, there's, there's really good rent indicators, um, things like that. As we moved into 2022, kind of at the end of 2021, we started to see the Fed talk tough, and then they actually started to act in 2022. Uh, and the overarching theme is basically destroyed demand. They keep using that uh, phrase, destroyed demand, destroyed demand. Uh, they now have done a number of aggressive uh, interest rate hikes. Uh, they also have stated that they are going to do quantitative tightening. How effective can they be in destroying demand? And maybe even what does that mean in terms of the experience for everyday Americans uh, or financial institutions? If the Fed says they're going to destroy demand, what, what exactly does that entail? And then how effective can they be? So I think they can be effective in the near term. And I think to some extent, they've already have been. Uh, they contributed to the housing market seizing up, for example. Uh, if, if Basically, if you make financing costs a lot higher – uh, that does impact cap companies' ability to get capital, uh, uh, consumers' ability to get capital, uh, you know, to borrow things, to buy assets, and, and to buy other things. Um, and, you know, there's also like a wealth effect, right? So going into this uh, period, U.S. household net worth was six times as high as GDP. Um, you know, it got up to four and a half during the dot-com bubble. It, it, it got about the same height during the 2007 housing bubble. Uh, but going into this period, it was six. It was six times. And so when you, you know, the Fed is able to put downward pressure on asset prices by doing things like ending QE, doing some mild QT, trying to raise rates uh, to a period of time. And if people see their asset prices going down pretty quickly, that can also uh, change their discretionary spending levels. Um, and so I, I think a lot of these things combined do impact demand in the near term. But the problem is that because the economy is so financialized, because there's so much debt in the system, and because the supply side is not really being fixed, especially if you look at the at the energy component of that uh, specifically, um, it, it's kind of short sighted in the in the longer term. Um, that basically the only way out of this is is improving the supply side. Um, and so I, you know, again, if you go back to does the Fed not know, or do they know but they're signaling differently? Um, and so if they're fighting this like the 1970s, I, I think that's an error. I, I think instead they have to they have to be aware that it, in many ways it's more like the 1940s. Um, and so 1970s attempts are likely to backfire and uh, just, just lead to more pain ahead. I think it's going to be a, a, I think we're going to have this inflation issue, I think, is going to be something that, that reoccurs uh, for a period of time. Famed economist Milton Friedman uh, has said, 
you know, for years uh, that sometimes the government solution is actually worse than the problem itself. Uh, if the Fed is treating this like a 1970s situation and that is an error in their policy, what would the ramifications or impact be? Like, what would you expect the problem then to become? I think that they can cause a recession and then you know, you start to get problems in say the treasury market or or things like that, and then they have to reverse course and then it damages their credibility. And then they basically, ironically, by tightening, they can impact the supply side. They can make it harder to bring on new supplies of things that are, you know, short and contributing to inflation. And then therefore they can lead to an even another inflation spike when they eventually have to reverse and turn dovish again. Um, I, I think it I think the problem itself goes back to the root of price controls. I don't think that they should be doing price controls. And you know, if you ask most people, should they be, should they be doing price controls? And people would say no. But that's essentially what the purpose of a central bank is. They do price controls on the price of money, um, and so you're kind of in a period of perpetual price controls. And so, the, of course, the question is, if they set the price at the wrong level, either too high or too low, um, that has huge ramifications. Um, and so, I think it's the deeper question is kind of like should should central banking in its current form even exist but the 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 nearer term problem i think is that as you as you get to the end of a long term debt cycle so as you get to lower lower interest rates and higher and higher debt as a percentage of gdp and higher higher asset valuations as a percentage of gdp you've really financialized the economy and then there's no clean way out right so i i often ascribe you know the problems that they have now are somewhat less about what they're you know what they're doing right now, right? So I'm not like I'm blaming Powell for all this inflation. It's it's the, it's decades of of kind of policy compounding, and then here there's there's it's just it becomes a, a series of bad decisions, right? Are you going to choose one bad outcome, or are you going to choose another bad outcome because they've already kind of painted themselves into a policy corner? We're recording this uh, at the end of July of 2022, uh, and the Fed has already been uh, conducting uh, a number of actions to create these tighter financial conditions. Uh, we're in a year where there'll be midterm elections, uh, and I think most people have given up on the idea of this soft landing. Uh, how likely is it that they can continue in the direction that they are without pivoting or kind of waving the white flag through the end of this year? Uh, and then how likely do you think it is that there would be some change of uh, kind of strategy before the end of 2023? Like, what is your expectations of, you know, can they break something in the short term? Is it going to be more of a medium term? What, what, what do you expect them to do over the coming months and years? So I think by late this year or by early next year, they probably would have would have pivoted their policy to some extent, um, especially post midterms. Um, I, you know, right now, for example, uh, you know they're releasing the the strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, that's obviously a finite thing that they can only do up to about the election, uh, and it's it's something that they can't keep doing after that. Um, so that that I mean that's not a policy that's a, a a fiscal side. That's that's not a monetary side. In terms of monetary tightening, I think that. You know they can tighten until one of a handful of things happen. Either the treasury market goes illiquid, like it did in March 2020, or um, credits or repo markets uh, encounter problems, um, or you start to get um, a severe labor weakness um, with unemployment going up. You know, uh, you know, say 100 basis points compared to what it is now. Um, and I think those are kind of the three the three things that could really cause them to to have to pivot. And I I would certainly expect that to happen before late 2023, and and potentially by late 2022. One of the statistics that I saw recently was uh, it's like 80 percent of countries around the world are experiencing high levels of inflation, uh, or or materially higher than they uh, historically have. 
How much of this is a U.S. problem versus just the entire world is suffering at the hands of supply chain disruptions, geopolitical uh, conflict fallout, and, and kind of other issues? So high debt levels um, and that whole idea of having to flatten debt away are a theme throughout most developed markets. So the United States, Japan, uh, and Europe at this point. So that's that's global, at least for for the the huge areas of global capital, and then commodities are a global market. And so if you have years of underinvestment in energy capex, that becomes a global problem, and then it becomes an issue of of kind of game theory. Because let's say the United States, for example, prints a ton of money um, and gives it to people, and those people can go out and buy things and con and consume energy. Um, if there's another country that did not print money, uh, their energy prices are going to go up too, uh, because the Americans printed. Um, and so it, it becomes a global thing pretty quickly. Uh, so it spreads around uh, because these, these economies are so interlinked, both in terms of their debt similarities, um, their financial connections, as well as the fact that, that global commodity pricing is a, is a global supply and demand market. So we saw uh, earlier this year the ECB kind of broke from the Federal Reserve uh, in the interest rate uh, kind of actions. They then capitulated and, and started to follow. How much emphasis do you place on the difference of strategy between kind of individual central banks versus this debt load ends up, you know, over the long term, they're all going to have to inflate it away. And so they may be able to hold out for short periods of time. Uh, but the, the kind of longer term trend just outweighs everything that they're doing in the short term. So I think the longer term trend is that all, all of these countries that have well over 100% public debt to GDP um, are going to be inflating that away uh, over a period of time. But it does become a question of is it is it disorderly or is it orderly uh what is the order um you know does one have to kind of go first is, does one have less room to kick the can down the road than another those become relevant questions um i i think i mean the ecb is in the the most challenging spot because they have a more acute energy crisis uh than most other developed market areas uh and they have a monetary union without a fiscal union right meaning that uh, they set monetary policy for the eurozone the ecb does um, but individual countries have have you know significant control over their own fiscal policies more than, for example, U.S. states, um, and so that kind of fragmentation uh, is just a it's a really challenging uh, environment to operate in. Uh, and then you have, you know you have countries like Italy with 150 percent debt to GDP, so they need assistance monetizing their sovereign debt. Um, but then you have other countries that are like, wait, why are we doing that? Why, you know, why can't we? You know, that that's not fair. For example, um, and so the ECB is just, you know, just a, there's more moving levers there that can go wrong um, compared to the United States, and then even compared to Japan, in my view. Um, so I think that there there are some differences, but they also have the same general theme of too much debt, so it's not going to be fully paid back in real terms over the long run. One of my favorite books is The Tao of Capital uh, by Mark Spitznagel. Uh, and one of the key themes in that book is basically human intervention in markets ends up throwing the market off, right? A very kind of Austrian view of the world. Uh, how valid is that perspective given what we've seen just even over the last two years of kind of we went from uh, a pandemic to asset bubble, high inflation. Now we're kind of going the other way. And it's very obvious that this is being driven by human uh, kind of central bank led uh, intervention. Does that just validate the Austrian view of the world and say, hey, look, maybe we should stop doing this? I think partially, but I also think that in terms of just reality, governance is a vacuum. So governance fills you know, where we're, we're government, where centralization does not exist, it, it tends to move in that direction. Um, one way I've been describing this this whole era, meaning going back 100, 150 
uh, years is that it, it's mostly a technological shortcoming, right? So because the speed of commerce due to telecommunications channels, you know, starting with like laying undersea cables in the in the late 1800s um, and going from there, um, that basically allowed commerce to occur very quickly, whereas bare asset money was slow, and so it got abstracted, centralized, arbitraged, um, and and so it just became inherently centralized and controlled and political. Um, and so, I think that that it's understandable that people are are angry at that phenomenon. But in some ways, just the order of technology made that almost inevitable. And, and it's not a surprise that we saw that that model spread to like every country in the world. Um, and so I think it's more constructive to focus on technological solutions that can that can provide alternatives. Like if, if someone doesn't have an alternative other than you shouldn't do this, um, but the natural incentives are for people to do it, then it's just you're going to kind of like be shouting into the wind. Um, and so I, I do think it's true that, you know, when you have centralized pools of power and they're human, and they're, you know, they have human levels of bandwidth dealing with uh, something that's more complex than any of us can can realize. Billions of, of, you know, weekly transactions, for example, that there's inevitably going to be errors. Um, and that longer term, I think it's about finding ways of of using technology to to decentralize things. I, I think, you know, we might finally be at a point where we have technology that allows us to get around some of the hurdles we've had over the past 150 years of of commerce moving faster than money. You recently had a Twitter thread about separating state and money, and you compared it to the separation of church and state uh, decades ago. Describe a little bit more about why that is such an important idea right now and why you think now is the time that that uh, could potentially happen. Because uh, I think for the first time, we have credible technology to, to potentially make it happen. Um, I, I don't think it's, it's guaranteed, but I think it, 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 it's a very interesting kind of time to be in for that concept. Uh, you know, if you go back long enough, the idea of of religion and 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 government being separate would have been considered odd, um, uh, and, and would have been outside of the Overton window of discussion. Um, but eventually, that was that was kind of separate. You'd have okay, people have their religion, and then you have government, and it's not tied to any one religion. Obviously, the whole world doesn't operate in that model, but a number of countries do now. And when it comes to separating state and money, people have a natural idea in their mind that if there's a government, they must be the issuer of currency. Um, that, that that's an inherent thing that a government has to do. And I think as we saw, I mean, there are some dollarized countries, for example, there are small countries that for one re- reason or another, they don't have their own currency. Maybe they maybe they fail their currency so poorly that, that it just got dollarized. Maybe it's because of, the, of a decision they made. There's a couple, you know, there's a handful of countries like this. Um, and just even ones that are not dollarized, there's a, a really poor track record when you look around the world of most government issued currencies. I mean, the, the dollar and the Swiss franc have been like some of the best ones. And even those have, have you know, had their own problems. But when you look globally, uh, it's a huge problem. And it's, it's quite possible that technology and adoption will get to the point where it becomes increasingly hard or, or you know, not ideal for governments to be the issue of currency. And, you know, I think it would start at the periphery. Uh, you know, the types of countries that are dollarized now, I think there could be more of those that become, you know, private monetized, we can call it, um, and that it, it could spread towards the core. Uh, but I, I think it's a trend to watch and, and to keep an open mind about the, the role of government, that, that, you know, separating money from state doesn't mean anarchy, just like separating religion to state didn't mean anarchy. It just means a different model and a different division of powers. 
When I think about these dollarized nations, uh, they basically are having a different country that is focused on a different economy, create the monetary policy, which affects their country. And so, you know, it's pretty obvious how that could be um, difficult uh, or or not necessarily ideal. Uh, But when it comes to countries that do have their own nation state currency, one aspect is the single best position to be in would be to control the global reserve currency. Do you agree or disagree with the statement that the second best position to be in was for, would be for the world to use a non-nation state currency if you are not in control of the nation state currency? I think that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, if you have the power to, to have the currency that everyone else relies on, that's obviously the best place to be in. Um, whereas the second best choice for everyone uh, is to use a, a kind of a, a neutral objective currency. And then the funny thing is, even as the global currency reserve issuer, it's not like everyone in that country benefits equally. Some people are actually harmed by the fact that others in their country are issuing the global reserve currency. And so that, that goes down to the whole Triffids dilemma uh, that, I, that I've kind of written about and talked about a lot, which is basically, you know, right now, for example, the cost of the United States maintaining its, its global reserve currency is that we pretty much have to run structural trade deficits to make that work properly. Um, and so that obviously it benefits you if you're near the issuance of that currency. If you work in government, Wall Street, um, if you're uh, in a very high margin business like technology or healthcare, you know, you're, you're generally shielded or even benefiting from that situation. Whereas if you make physical things in the United States, um, you really get no benefit and maybe some downside uh, of being in the currency reserve issuing country. Um, and so the, the fallback for many people is, is yes, uh, you know, kind of a separate neutral currency, uh, but only if the technology is there to make it possible. I mean, a, a lot of the reason why gold was eventually moved away is just because it was too slow. And it allowed for policymakers to arbitrage that and get people to use something that, that devalued and that they had more control over. How do you think the transition would occur? So let's say, you know, uh, this does happen and we transition from a uh, kind of nation state led monetary policy or, or currency to uh, a decentralized uh, version of it or a neutral uh, kind of um, agnostic to any nation. What does that look like? Is it kind of a parallel adoption similar to what we're seeing in El Salvador where they're dollarized and they create another legal tender and then they kind of live with two for a while? Is there countries that you would anticipate will just kind of rip the Band-Aid off and say, hey, you know, on Monday we're moving and uh, everyone get on board? Like, h- how do you see this playing out? I think it's probably a parallel option because, I mean, if you use Bitcoin as an example, it's right now it's too volatile, you know, for, for a whole country just to use that as their as their entire currency. Um, and so I think it'd be something that just grows in parallel. And, and the longer it lasts, the longer the Lindy effect goes on. Um, the more that organic adoption occurs and then a couple countries acknowledge it and maybe use that as reserves, maybe make it legal tender, I think it grows from there. And again, there's no there's no guarantee of that worldview happening. It's just an observation of the technology itself, what it what makes it what what's possible, uh, what the risks are. I, I think in a in a pre-Bitcoin world, uh, I think eventually probably gold would get some degree of prominence back as a number of these currencies failed. I think that for example, gold would be more used in reserves and that you'd have more like you know, gold as kind of the the neutral currency that that various fiats get kind of um you know either pegged to again or at least like you know that they that they all float kind of against gold and gold is kind of the core of the system. Uh, but now I think we have we have some other alternatives like Bitcoin that I think are you know have a shot at changing the way that that financial systems work. You know, twenty years from now. 
And so as you start to see this play out, obviously Bitcoin appears right now to be the most likely candidate to kind of fill this role. Are there other aspects, technologies, digital currencies that you think could potentially fill this role or is it just Bitcoin and that's kind of the one shot we have uh, for kind of a, a, a nation state agnostic currency? So I don't really say anything other than Bitcoin that has the qualities to be like a, a reserve asset or like a, a global neutral money. Uh, I mean, there are, I think I, I categorize a lot of other things as, as equities. Um, I think some of them are doing interesting things. I think, I mean, for example, stable coins are, are something I've been bullish on for a couple of years now. Um, that they also serve like an intermediate term role where it, it's a way for people in, in different countries to access dollars, uh, even if their local banking system doesn't really want them to or their local government doesn't really want them to um, because the stablecoin issuers are centralized, but the centralized hub is outside of their country. Uh, and then due to technology, they can they can access these digital representations uh, of dollars uh, that are ostensibly collateralized um, by, by pools of, of assets. Um, and so, you know, I think that there are a number of things here, but yeah, the only one I see that actually can reserve that, you know, I think that has the the security of being like a global reserve asset uh, is something like Bitcoin. And as you look at kind of Bitcoin and crypto, uh, I think you've done a great job of kind of highlighting the differences where Bitcoin is something very separate and distinct uh, to the rest of the market. Talk a little bit more about how you see uh, the, the differences in Bitcoin and everything else. So I think that a lot of other things have some similarities to equities in the sense that if, if you try to remove the energy component, you're basically putting in more governance. Um, a lot of them are more uh, centralized, uh, and so they end up looking like like equity, like like platforms that have some degree of centralized development. Uh, you know, a handful of, of stakeholders uh, that can kind of control the network, uh, which which in my view is a lot different than than what Bitcoin does. So I think that. The way I generally categorize it for a couple of years now is that Bitcoin is money. Uh, it's like a digital commodity. And that a lot of else what we see in the space is is kind of these hybrids or these digital equities uh, that that you know might have value in their ecosystem and as as serving a purpose, but they should just be thought of uh, rather differently. And when you start to look at uh, a number of these other areas, uh, one of the kind of interesting ones that doesn't seem to get labeled, obviously, as Bitcoin, doesn't also get labeled as kind of crypto, is stable coins. Um, they really aren't trying to issue something new. They basically are just a digital token that's backed one-to-one -to, -one to dollars. On many platforms, whether people want to use them or not, uh, if you want to buy Bitcoin, many times when you deposit fiat in it sits in a stable coin and then you have to purchase Bitcoin. How do you look at their role, uh, maybe just in like the Bitcoin and crypto ecosystem? And then we can talk about central bank digital currencies. So stable coins are, are serving two significant roles right now. One is, uh, as you point out, unit of account for a lot of trading platforms, either, either centralized offshore exchanges uh, or in some of the DeFi markets, basically digital representation of dollars. It, it's it's still dollars. It's just like, you know, it's, I mean, I'm talking about, not talking about the algorithmic variety, but the actual fiat collateralized variety. Those are just dollars in, in, in this kind of, you know, more efficient wrapper. And the second use case, the one that actually interested me more, is you know people in emerging markets or frontier markets in countries with failing currencies, um, you know stable coins are useful for them to to hold for kind of intermediate term savings. So let's, I mean, I, I had an Argentinian describe it to me very well. He's like, you know, money that I'm going to spend in under a month, I'll hold in local currency. Uh, money that I want to hold for for several months, I'll hold in stable coins. And money that I want to put away for three to five years, uh, I'll put some of that in Bitcoin. Uh, and so I, I think that there is 
you know, there's a demand for dollars globally, and stablecoins just happen to be the technology that it enables to get allow them to get their hands on dollars. Uh, like I said before, even if they're even if their governments and their and their uh, banking networks are are not making them available or trying to restrict access. Um, so I, I do think that stablecoins have that purpose this decade. Um, and that's why I also think that there's cool things like Taro on Lightning that could potentially bring stablecoins over to Bitcoin, and it just becomes whatever a network is most efficient to transact those those dollars around because those are less about pure decentralization and more about what can give people access to a cheap ability to access that foreign central hub of dollars. Central bank digital currencies are, I, I think, a whole other thing entirely where it's in many ways kind of the antithesis of, of Bitcoin. Um, those are more about centralized control, more about um, programming restrictions on how to use the money um, and kind of even pre-programming like inflationary policy. Um, and so um, I think that there are some countries like China that obviously are pursuing the CBDC route pretty rapidly. Um, and then it's possible in the United States, you see other other kind of public-private you know, partnerships. Maybe a stable coin kind of gets treated as like a CBDC because, of course, stable coins are vulnerable to regulation and control and regulatory capture. Um, so I, I think over time, those could potentially merge more in some of these countries that don't want to maybe develop their own CBDC. But I think it's, it's still a very fluid environment at this point. And so it, it's hard to sort of lay out a direct course of, of how some of these things go. Yeah. When, when you start to look at uh, maybe the situation that we're here, if we bring it back to the United States, uh, it seems like estimations are anywhere between maybe 12 to 15 percent of American citizens uh, have some sort of relationship or ownership of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, if you look at other places like in uh, Nigeria, self-reported is somewhere over 30 percent. I would handicap that and probably say, again, probably 10 to 15 percent. And so it, it seems in countries where there is uh, a decent amount of internet penetration, there are smartphones, uh, and there is a reason, whether for speculation, whether because of a collapsing uh, native currency, somewhere between 10 to 15%. We kind of hold that as like the, the adoption level. What would your expectation be through the rest of this decade? Is this like a 10 to 15 goes to like 80 to 90%? Do you expect it to maybe go 10 to 15 to 30%? Like how do you think about kind of growth and adoption of an asset like Bitcoin given where we are uh, in the global macro environment? I, I think I'm avoiding major tail risks like a like a huge bug in the code or, or something like that. I mean I, I think it's going to trend towards higher double digits um, globally. Um, I, I think you could have different – adoption rates in, say, China versus Nigeria long term, uh, I think they can maintain a pretty big difference there in terms of adoption rates. Um, but I think it's, you know, as long as it continues to be successful and do what it's supposed to do, um, I think it's, you know, over time, it becomes more widely held. And then making it more widely held um, most likely makes it a little bit less volatile over time. I mean, it's still going to be volatile for quite a long period of time. But we do see very small amounts of reduction in that volatility since the beginning. And I think if it was held by, you know, five times more people, ten times more people, um, that starts to get pretty significant. Uh, so right now, I mean, that that double-digit percentage is not even in in every country, right? So it's it's like you said, there's countries with with high internet penetration, um, countries that that for whatever reason it, it spread there culturally, but less so in other countries. Um, for example, we don't see it as much in Egypt as we see it in Nigeria, um, and so I think that. Uh, Kind of the low-hanging fruit is that we'll see low double-digit penetration in most countries, more countries, uh, and then from there, I think that some of the countries that have these higher penetration levels could go much higher in the, into the double digits. 
When you start to analyze uh, kind of the state of analysis around the current financial environment, it feels like there is a bifurcation that's occurring. I'll call one uh, the mainstream consensus. This is where you see uh, talking points from the White House. You know, it's not a recession. Uh, inflation is transitory uh, and, and those similar types of phrasing and, and, and uh, kind of message. And then you have what I'll call like the internet. And it feels like those two conversations or those two bodies of knowledge are almost getting pulled in opposite directions. Like, th- like we're getting more and more extremes. And, you know, recently the uh, conversation around what is a recession, Wikipedia has 30 plus revisions to it in a couple of days. Uh, just a blog post from the White House is somehow the number one search result almost immediately. How do you start to think about uh, maybe just the conversation about the data versus the internet and what appears to maybe be a little bit more intellectually honest pursuit of like what is happening. I think that goes back to the whole fourth turning concept of of growing distrust of institutions and kind of the the gradual entropy, the the gradual decay of the the you know perceived value of institutions and and the usefulness of of, of institutions, and that's why institutions. Get get those cycles of destruction and being rebuilt in, in a way that I think reflects you know kind of the the more modern era each time, and so right now I think that 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 representation of of how we're being told to interpret weak economic data, how we're being told to interpret inflation, and then seeing very different analysis online and elsewhere, I think that's a symptom of the era. And that's not to say that the online version is totally accurate either. I mean, misinformation can also spread very quickly online. And so I think it's important for people to check sources and and to do a lot of their own analysis and to look for pockets of credibility. Uh, but yeah, in general, I think that crowdsourced kind of intelligence um, is is something that is really sniffing out uh, a lot of the, the weakness in the institutional narratives uh, uh, in this day and age. And it's something that is new compared to the last time the world went through this this kind of era. Uh, you know, in the 1940s, people couldn't just send around memes of like the central bank doing yield curve control and QE and you know and, and all the different things it was doing. There was you know it was it was a much slower distribution of information, and so I think that that can make things rather hard to predict and rather nonlinear as we try to figure out what's going to happen the rest of this decade. As we look forward over the next decade, what are like one or two things that you're looking at or forward to that maybe other people haven't put enough importance on yet? I think traditional markets still think this energy inflation's transitory. Uh, and I think the underinvestment in, in energy capex is going to be one of the biggest themes of this decade. Um, uh, the heart of that right now is in Europe, but I think it's, it's, it's largely a global problem. And that's not just oil and gas. It's also like, you know, if you want to have more EV penetration, you have to have better electrical grids. Um, and it's about getting energy in all the ways it's made to where it needs to be. Um, nuclear is also, I think, a, a, a big component of that conversation. Um, and so I think energy security, energy abundance are going to be like an ongoing issue that, you know, even years from now, I think we're still going to be dealing with. And I think that that's under appreciated and underpriced by, uh, you know, analysts that are not close to the ground in terms of, of uh, kind of the physical reality uh, of the engineering situation and the, you know, the complex, uh, you know, political situation, all the different factors that go into that uh, lack of CapEx. 
The last thing I want to talk to you about is uh, your process for producing the research that you do. Uh, LynnAlden.com, you put out these monthly reports that are absolutely fantastic. They're incredibly robust, and and, uh, I think what makes people so impressed by them is not only the thoroughness of the analysis, but also your ability to kind of articulate the ideas uh, so that people who much less smarter than you can understand them. Uh, What is that process like, and, and kind of how do you put those together? Usually what I do is I work on projects in parallel um, over the course of, of uh, a long period of time. And so instead of just kind of like working on one piece and then getting it out like, you know, week by week, um, I, I really sit on each piece usually for quite a while uh, and I play with it and I kind of sculpt it over time. Um, and I, I shift back and forth towards which, whichever one is kind of drawing my interest um, or that has a deadline approaching and, and, and you know, kind of move around like that. And I think that that, the, the amount of kind of, um, you know, if you spend one week full time on something versus one month part time on something, uh, I think that the at least at least the way my my mind works, uh, it comes out better if I spent longer time, but part time on it, because, you know, your opinion can change in a week, right? You, you might have like had a had an idea that you thought was cool. And then like a couple of days later, you're like, what did I publish? Like, like, uh, that's, you know, it's not how I would write it today. But I think if you really sit on something and play with it for a while, um, it, it becomes, a, I think, a better reflection of what you think, because you're basically taking a longer sample size of, of what you really think about something, and that allows it to be, to be more true by the time it's, it's published. Where can we send people if they want to uh, read those weekly, or I'm sorry, those monthly uh, research reports, or if they want to get the rest of the work that you're putting out? Uh, so I'm at lindalden.com. People can find me there. And I'm also active on Twitter uh, at Lynn Contact. Awesome. My last question for you uh, is a little bit more of a fun one. Uh, are you having fun, even though it's a bear market in Bitcoin and uh, kind of as you look around the world, there's lots of uh, lots of issues? I'm, I'm doing my best. Yeah. One thing I, I, I didn't do enough of over the past couple of years was exercise. You know, there's the whole pandemic, you know, gyms were closed and uh, you know, I was overworked. And one thing I've been, I've been really focusing on in the past couple of months is making sure I'm getting outside more and getting exercise. Uh, cause then it circles back and, and makes me enjoy my work more as well. So uh, I think people have to, have to find ways to be healthy and to have fun, even though we are going through kind of, you know, just very challenging times globally. Well, it, that's an interesting point, which is what would your ideal day be like? Like how, how would you structure it balance between work and kind of exercise going outside? Like what, what would that look like? Um, ideally pockets of both, right? So instead of just doing nothing but work for eight or 10 hours and then getting exercise, it's trying to mix it up, trying to, you know, go outside, shut your eyes, think about something. You know, if you, if you get up, um, you know, do some work, kind of do your high impact work, and then you go out for like a long bike ride, it, it gives you time to think of what you just did. Um, so by the time you maybe go back for like your afternoon session, um, you know, you, you kind of look at things from another angle. Uh, and so I, I like that, I, that kind of, intermixing it together approach. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I lied. I actually have one more question out of personal curiosity. What's the most important book you think you've read over the last couple of years, uh, whether it's, you know, finance and investing related or something else? Probably lessons of history. Uh, I might've brought that up on probably my my first or second appearance in a show. Uh, I think, you know, it's like a hundred pages that kind of encompass like 5,000 years of human history and trying to draw a couple big conclusions or just big observations from it. Um, I think it's a pretty important piece. 
Yeah, you, you did mention that one, uh, and I've read a piece of it, and uh, it, it is uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, awesome, Lynn. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You uh, you continue to uh, be signal among the noise, which is uh, greatly appreciated. I know a lot of folks in the uh, uh, in the audience they subscribe to your research and, uh, and they really enjoy your insights. So thanks so much for all the hard work, and uh, we'll definitely do this again in the future. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. All right, sounds good. Talk soon. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to transition into a brand new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to thecryptoacademy.io. My team and I have been working with the top HR teams in the industry to develop an intensive three-week training program with over 50 live events. We teach you exactly what you need to know to break into the industry, including live interview prep and resume review. Our students have been hired at over 75 of the world's best Bitcoin and crypto companies. Go to thecryptoacademy.io to learn more. Again, that's thecryptoacademy.io. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with your friends, and I'll see you all for the next episode.